Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. We provide dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission today to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and we're thrilled today to have Dr. Stephen Jones joining us. He is the Assistant Professor of Small Animal Orthopedic Surgery at the Ohio State Veterinary Medical Center. And Dr. Jones is going to talk to us about a number of orthopedic conditions, but we're really going to focus today on what they call ACL tears. And so I'm very excited about this conversation. This is something that a lot of people encounter in their lives. So welcome, Dr. Jones. We also have Dr. Judy Stella, who is the head of standards and research at Good Dog, and Susan Patterson, who is a Good Dog breeder advisor, joining our conversation. So welcome, everyone. Thank you. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. You are from Dublin. And so I'm very excited to hear about that and what brought you to orthopedic medicine in our pets. Yeah, I'm from just outside Dublin, a place called Monaghan, um, just about 50 miles north of Dublin in the east of Ireland. Um, I grew up, I had dogs all my life. My parents had dogs, we had dogs growing up, and my uncle was a veterinarian as well. And he had a very strong interest in fixing dogs. And actually, his interest came from racing greyhounds. The industry in Ireland is much bigger than it is in the States right now. And it's actually very well run. And so his passion is putting dogs back together because a lot of these racing greyhounds would get injuries and they'd be career ending injuries. And he wanted to put them back together. And he always said to me, his one regret was that he never went on and did further training and became a specialist surgeon. He's a GP, but he does some surgery. And I guess that's what made me start thinking about veterinary medicine and then also thinking ahead to doing some further training post my veterinary degree, which I did in Dublin. So I finished my veterinary degree in Dublin. Um, I went to work with John D, who's a specialist orthopedic surgeon in Hollywood, Florida, and has done a lot of work with agility dogs and racing right. greyhounds and sports dogs. And he's published books on it, and he's mm-hmm. published dozens and dozens of papers. So I actually went and spent two weeks with him just watching him do his thing as a student, and he invited me back to come and work with him as an intern. So I went to South Florida for a year to do an internship, and that was in 2009. And here we are 11 years later, I'm still in the States, now in Ohio. So that's life. Sometimes it just takes you that way. That's all right. You know, Dublin to Florida, that's okay. (laughs) Yeah, definitely warmer. Absolutely. So Judy, talk to us about some of the questions you have for our listeners. Yeah, so for our listeners who may not know, what is an ACL and what type of injury is common for dogs? Well, the ACL is the anterior cruciate ligament. And I think it's very important to start out by saying the correct term in dogs is CCL, which is cranial cruciate ligament. However, it's usually referred to as ACL because that's the human terminology. A means anterior, which is front, but that's the front of humans standing up and down. Dogs don't have a front standing up and down because they stand on all fours. So they have a term called cranial, which means towards the head. But for all intents and purposes, an ACL is a CCL. It's the same thing, just different nomenclature. And the CCL is the most important stabilizing structure in the knee of the dog, also called the stifle. To confuse things more, you might hear the term stifle. 
the stifle joint is the knee joint, same thing. And when we think about joints, we typically think of bones being the most important stabilizers. We think about the hip ball and socket joint, the shoulders, a ball and socket joint. Well, the knee joint in the dog is a little bit different. The bones don't provide much stability at all. In fact, they provide a little bit of instability. We've got round bones sitting on a slope, so they don't want to stay together very well. And evolutionarily, we're not quite sure why the dog knee developed like that. But we now know that the most important component for stabilizing the dog knee is the ACL or the CCL. So it is the most important stabilizing structure. And unfortunately, it's also the most common structure that gets injured in dogs. What kind of injuries do they get? Well, the catch-all phrase is an ACL tear. But there are different presentations of that. An ACL tear can be partial in nature. It can be complete but functional, or it can be complete but non-functional. And usually if it's complete, those dogs have instability in their knee and they're limping. Partial tears is very often how it starts. And maybe if we just take a step back, because the term ACL disease is used for dogs or CCL disease. In people, you'll never hear them saying, I've got an ACL disease. Human surgeons would look at you funny if you said that to them. In people, you usually tear the ACL by hyperextending their knee. Maybe a basketballer comes down from a dunk or a soccer player gets kicked by another player or cleats up and the two bones separate and you get a traumatic tear in the ligament. That's how people tear their ACLs predominantly. In dogs, we see that, but that's much, much less common. That would be less than 10% of the cases. So traumatic etiology, traumatic causes are present in dogs, but much less common, about 10% or less of cases. The majority of the cases are a degenerative process and the ligament just over time, for some reason, starts to break down. And owners may notice my dog's a little bit lame and they give the dog a little break, maybe rest, leash only activity for one or two weeks. And then all of a sudden the dog is walking and he's back to normal. That dog probably had a partial tear, went undiagnosed, but had a partial tear. And that might happen one or two or three or multiple times until eventually the dog starts limping again. But this time the limping doesn't get better. The dog stays lame. And that is when a partial tear becomes a full tear. And at that stage, the dog is limping because the knee is unstable. Every time the he or she puts the leg down, same is true for cats, but it's very uncommon in cats. So it's mainly dogs. So when the dog puts its leg down, it's unstable and it feels like it's giving way. So the dog doesn't want to put all its weight on that because it doesn't feel good. How common is it? I mean, you did say that it was the most common injury in dogs, but do we have like a prevalence? How many dogs? Are- yeah. We have an idea. So there are certain breeds at risk and in at-risk breeds, it's seen in anywhere from five to 10% of those breeds. So that's quite high. That's actually very, very high. Overall, the prevalence is much lower than that. And you just say in dogs, how high is the prevalence? We don't really know, but very low. I would say maybe 1%, something like that. That's just a guess. I don't know exactly. But what we do know, based on some studies that have been looking at this over a period of time from the 1960s right through till today, the prevalence is going up. And there may be a couple of factors that contribute to that. And I think one of the most important factors is we're diagnosing it more. So veterinarians know what to look out for. They know how to diagnose it. And I think probably that wasn't as well appreciated historically. And that might be part of the reason. But there certainly are other contributing factors like breeding practices and dietary considerations that may be playing into that as well. So is limping the only sign or symptom that dogs have? And then you talking about diagnosis. How do you diagnose it? Limping is the most common sign that we see. If they're not limping, they probably don't have a torn ACL or CCL. So limping is the most common. But of course, limping in the back leg doesn't necessarily mean that that's what it is. It could be a number of different things causing it. 
Another thing that owners will notice very commonly is what we call the abnormal sit test. A normal dog should sit nice and square with their knees and ankles tucked up underneath them. Dogs with torn ACLs or sometimes even partially torn ACLs will kick their leg off to the sides. They'll sit with the leg out to the back or sometimes they'll tuck it underneath them. But they don't want to sit down square because when they do, that causes the bones to move inside the joint and that hurts. So a sit test sometimes is what owners will see. Another thing that commonly will be seen, especially in dogs that don't have a long hair, you know, they don't have a long kind of thick coat, will be muscle loss. So they will actually lose muscle because they're not using their leg as much. So you can actually sometimes see that. Or if you want to really be sure, you could get a tape measure and measure the circumference of the thigh muscles, one side versus the other. And you will probably notice at least after some time that the muscle mass does reduce. It doesn't tend to be very dramatic initially, but over time, the muscle mass will reduce. To the very observant owner, if they're very, very observant, they'll notice a little bit of swelling on the inside of the leg. And that's what we call medial buttress. And medial buttress essentially is the body trying to heal. It's laying down scar tissue, trying to stabilize this joint that is otherwise very unstable. Unfortunately, nature doesn't always do a good enough job, which is why surgeons have to treat this a lot of times. But that is another sign that owners might appreciate. But they're the main signs. You had mentioned that certain breeds are predisposed. Are there like the top three breeds? What would they be? We know there are some breeds that are genetically predisposed. And the most common breed I see is a Labrador. But if you're talking about genetic predisposition, Labrador is top of the list, Rottweilers, Mastiffs and Newfoundlands. We know from studies that they have a genetic predisposition to this. There probably are genetic predispositions in lots more breeds. They just haven't been studied. You know, there's just so much to do. You can't study every single breed. So these are just probably the ones that we see most commonly. So researchers actually looked at those breeds. But in my clinic, I see all breeds and sizes. I see large breeds, giant breeds, and then I also see toy poodles and little chihuahuas and Yorkies. So unfortunately, every dog can get it. Interestingly, however, there are some breeds that don't get it or very rarely get it. And they are what we call genetically safe. And there are some genetically safe breeds. And the poster child for that is the greyhound. The only ACL tear I've ever seen in the Greyhound, I've seen it in a couple of times, it was a traumatic injury where they ran into something or they got the leg caught in something and the ACL tore along with a lot of other different ligaments. But Greyhounds, they're actually the oldest dog breed known to man. The Egyptians bred Greyhounds and as you can imagine, they bred them for speed to catch rabbits and other, I'm sure, prey that humans could then eat. And so Greyhounds weren't bred if they weren't fast and if they had joint problems, they probably weren't fast so they weren't bred. So They were bred for musculoskeletal supremacy, and that's what they have. So they have very, very good joints. So we don't tend to see it in greyhounds and other sighthounds like Salukis and Borzois, very, very uncommon in those breeds. You mentioned weight and condition. Labradors Mm. are my breed. I have, in 40 years, have only had two CCLs and have been very fortunate that way. But conditioning, what could owners do for better conditioning that might help if there was a possible predisposition? The best thing any owner can do is keep their dog thin. And we all watch the TV ads for food, and I'm not going to name any brands, but we all know we've seen these ads where they have Labradors or Golden Retrievers and they look like Barrows. They're really rotund, they're fat. And that's what we're conditioned to think is normal because that's what the food companies want us to think, because then you buy more food and the dog eats more food. I tell owners I want the dogs to be marathon runner skinny. And I have a golden retriever, and I've had people ask me, what's wrong with your dog? Why is he so skinny? And 
people who are very well educated and you'd say, okay, they just don't understand that that's normal. And you'll never see a coyote or a fox or a wolf that looks like a barrel. They're always thin. So simply say, you know, the most effective thing they can do is keep their dog thin for life. That is probably the biggest risk factor along with breed is body condition and how fat the dog is. So not necessarily how heavy the dog is, but how fat the dog is. So we normally use a scale of one to nine. Nine is morbidly obese. One is emaciated. I like the dog around about four or five. And if people just put into Google Nestle Purina, um, I think it's body condition score. It's just a study that was done by them, not necessarily plugging any particular company. I have no affiliation to them. I'm just saying that they have this chart that we routinely use in veterinary medicine to look at one versus nine. I like the dog to be closer to four than five. Five is the average, but I kind of say push towards four. Keep your dog nice and thin. I think for owners, Dr. Jones, an easy way is if you can see those last ribs, right? That's a good tell for the average person. Yes. You know, another easy thing is if you can feel ribs, but you have to push hard to feel them, there is a layer of tissue, let's call it tissue, but we're talking about fat, between the skin and the ribs, and that's too much. You should be able to run your hand along the side of the dog and feel the ribs. If you can't, the dog is overweight. Yes. And Susan, you had a couple other questions about other types of orthopedic conditions that might play into this. Yeah, I did. It seems like orthopedic conditions go hand in hand. If you have a dog with a luxating patella, if you have a dog whose hips are weak, and you had mentioned about dogs who will compensate. Well, you didn't say compensate, but I see my dogs compensate when something doesn't feel right. You know, they'll put all of the weight on the front paws and their whole front builds up and their rear end goes down. What kind of other conditions do you see that could be linked or we should be looking for, be aware of those things? Yeah, that's a really good point. Compensation definitely plays a role in developing other orthopedic conditions. So they have one problem and maybe the owner doesn't get that addressed right away. And then they get another problem and go, oh, they bring the dog in. Well, the second problem, maybe it's because of compensation. You're absolutely right. As far as conditions that are linked, you already mentioned that the most common one that we think about and recognize as a contributing factor to the risk factors for ACL tearing is patella luxation. And the patella is the kneecap. And the kneecap can luxate one way or the other, either medial, which is towards the inside, or lateral, which is towards the outside. We're specifically talking about medial patella luxation. That is by far and away the most common type of patella luxation. The reason we believe that increases the risk is that when the patella luxates to the medial side, it pulls the tibia, which is the bone, the shin bone below the femur, it pulls it towards the inside and that stretches the ACL. Now there is a little bit of conflicting evidence in the literature as to truly whether this is a risk factor or not, especially in smaller breed dogs, but in large and giant breed dogs, I firmly believe that dogs that have patella luxation are at increased risk um, over the lifetime of tearing their CCL. Is there a gate? So if you suspect your dog might have a luxating patella, Mm. is there a gate that an owner could say if they walk behind their dog and they can see that joint move and the way that the hock and the knee, is there a tell that maybe could help them? Yeah, there really is. That's a great question because people don't tend to ask me that as far as what can I look out for. They usually come to me when they're seeing something abnormal. The first thing you want to look for with a medial patella luxation is knee in. So the knees are kind of brought towards midline. So the knees are closer together and that mm-hmm. makes the ankles pop out. So the main bone we see in a dog's ankle is the calcaneus, which corresponds to our heel bone. 
And that should normally be in a straight line with the knees. But if the knees are being pulled in, the ankles kind of get pulled out. And so that's a sign that you can look for if the kneecap is out. A more common sign that you will see is intermittent skipping. So if the owner just notices my dog is fine, but every so often he just skips on that leg, probably what's happening is that patella is popping out and popping back in. It causes a funny sensation and they skip. That is the most common sign. What about dragging toes, like in the back when they're walking and all of a sudden they kind of drag that foot? And I call it the horse terms for me is that foot moves and I drag the toe. And I see it in dogs too. Yeah. That usually is coming from something higher up. That is usually something neurologic. And very often that is coming from the lower back sciatic nerve problem. So there are two main nerves going through the back leg, the sciatic nerve, and we've all heard in people's sciatica, which is pain of your sciatic nerve. And then there's the femoral nerve or femoral nerve, depending on how you pronounce it. But the sciatic nerve is the one that goes down to the digits and it controls extending the digits. So when a dog walks right before he puts its foot down, the digits extend. If there's some issue with the sciatic nerve, it may not be functioning perfectly It doesn't get the toes extended in time and they end up dragging. And a classic sign you can see with that is if you look at the dog's toenails, they'll tend to wear down the two middle toenails. That is usually neurologic in origin, not necessarily orthopedic, but it may be an orthopedic problem that's causing it. So there may be bone impingement on the nerve or something like that. So let's say that my dog is a little bit lame and is doing that very classic torn ACL toe touch. It won't put weight, but it'll touch its toe. That's what I've personally experienced. What are some of the treatment options? I mean, this can be, I assume, and I actually don't assume, I know for a fact this can be an expensive procedure. Let's talk about some of that. Treatments, costs, recovery, all of that sort of thing. Yeah. Really, I tell my clients, you have two broad treatment categories. One is conservative and one is surgical. And I'll talk about both of those individually. Some of the older literature kind of looked at the outcomes of conservative versus surgical and said, well, long term, the outcomes are the same. Mm -hmm. And that is a little bit misleading, in fact, because the outcomes are the same maybe 10 years later when both dogs have arthritis in their knees. (laughs) But the question is, what has that dog been doing for 10 years? And the dog that had surgery in general gets back to normal sooner. Okay. Now, I'm a surgeon. (laughs) You might say I've got an agenda. Not really. I can just tell you I've seen it both ways. I've seen dogs that have had surgery and have not had surgery. But if an owner doesn't want to do surgery for whatever reason, maybe the dog has got heart problems. Maybe the dog has kidney problems or liver problems and anesthesia is not a good risk. I will decline surgery for those dogs. But we're never talking about anything drastic like amputation or euthanasia. We're talking about conservative treatments because these dogs can do well. Let's talk about conservative therapy. For whatever reason, the owner doesn't want to do surgery or the vet doesn't want to do surgery. Maybe it's not a good candidate. I tell the owners, the first thing to remember is that your dog is more than likely not suffering. And they go, well, doc, my dog's limping. He's not putting his leg down. He must be suffering. Well, if your dog had a broken leg, he wouldn't put his leg down and he would be suffering because that is acutely painful. I see these dogs coming in with torn ACLs every single day. And I palpate them and I can palpate for instability. That's how I diagnose it. It's with my hands. I tell if there's instability there, but the dogs aren't crying. They're not in a lot of pain. Maybe when it happens acutely, there's a bit of inflammation and pain, but long-term they tend to limp because of instability. I wouldn't let a dog walk around on a broken leg. That's just cruel. But I let a dog walk around with a torn ACL because they don't tend to be in ongoing acute pain. One of the things we haven't talked about yet today is 
additional problems that can occur with a torn ACL, and one of those is a torn meniscus. And the meniscus is another stabilizing structure in the joint. It's like a cushion in the joint. And a high percentage of dogs with torn ACLs will also tear the meniscus. If it's torn enough to be mobile inside the joint, that can cause ongoing pain. If that is the case and you're trying conservative therapy, you might find after, you know, four to eight weeks, my dog is still not using his leg very much. Then that tells you, hey, conservative therapy is not working here. We need surgery. What is conservative therapy? To answer your question, conservative therapy involves a number of different things. There's no one treatment. The first thing I tell people is if your dog's overweight, you're going to start on a very strict weight loss program immediately. That is the best advice I can give an owner. And I recognize that that's not going to happen fast. That's going to take weeks or months for weight to come off. But this is going to be a lifelong problem, so we need to start right away. Two, I will give the owners anti-inflammatory pain medications. I just said a couple of minutes ago it's not very painful, but there may be some inflammation. So I will tell the owners, give it as needed. I might give them two weeks supply. I'm not giving them two months supply because then they'll give it for two months. And that has adverse effects on the kidney and the liver. And the dog probably doesn't need it. What tends to happen once they get out of that first, say, five to seven days post tearing it, is that if you give the non-steroidal or not, they're just as lame because of instability. Pain meds can't help with instability. So if they're just as lame with the meds as without, then don't give it. I will recommend usually some form of joint supplement. And my joint supplement of choice for conservative therapy for any dog with arthritis is fish oils. And there are certain types of fish oils which I think work better than others. But every single dog that tears their ACL, bar none, they will all develop arthritis. So we have to manage that over time. Even if we do surgery, they'll still get arthritis and it will still progress. But that's kind of the conservative route. And I usually recommend leash-only walking for four to eight weeks. Give the body time to lay down scar tissue. Give the body time to try and stabilize it. That's what's happening with conservative therapy. We're just letting scar tissue stabilize the joint. And that's kind of in a nutshell, what conservative therapy is. There are lots of other things we can do, and I'm happy to answer questions on that, but that in a nutshell is conservative therapy. The second big category then is surgery. And can you give us any kind of an idea when we're talking about surgery, what kind of cost are we talking about? This isn't a $100 procedure. No, not anymore. (laughs) It depends on the procedure. It depends on where you are, and it depends on the size of the dog. That's a very wishy-washy answer. Let me give you some examples. Labrador Retriever, the prototypical, um, sort of the poster child of ACL tears. Procedure that I recommend, and it's the procedure that I do most commonly, it's the most common surgery that's performed here at Ohio State in the orthopedic department and probably across the country in specialist departments, is a procedure called a TPLO. And that has been shown in literature to arguably be the best procedure available. That is going to cost here, depending on the size of the dog, somewhere from $3,800 to about $4,500. I have colleagues who work out in California are charging for the same procedure about 7000 Okay, so where you live very much affects the cost of this, but that's roughly what that would cost. But there are other surgical procedures that are available that are cheaper, and I'm not saying that they're bad. Maybe in someone else's hands, they work just as well. So there are other procedures that can be offered that might cost in the sort of 1500 to $2,000 range. So ultimately, I think it depends on who does it, where it's done, and what procedure is done. Right. Question, Laura, if you don't mind. You had mentioned the supplement of oils, fish oils specifically. And I have my Labrador crew knowing the predisposition for this on grizzly salmon oil. Okay. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's right. I'm open for (laughs) options. What do you suggest is good for 
pet owners and breeders to keep their dogs on as something that can assist in this and assist in arthritis in the old age as well. Yes. Well, any fish oil in general is going to be good. If you put a dog on a fish oil supplement of any kind, it's going to help because it's going to have most likely omega-3 and 6 fatty acids. And we know they are natural anti-inflammatories. So instead of giving your NSAID by mouth, which has all of the other side effects, it's a natural anti-inflammatory. The salmon fish oil is probably very good. My preference, and I have no affiliation to this particular company or product, but I just have seen research with this product and they're doing ongoing research is a product called Antinol. And Antinol um, is out of New Zealand and it's from the New Zealand green-lipped mussel, which sounds very random, but it purportedly no. has much higher percentages of different varying natural anti-inflammatories in their product. And I have just anecdotal evidence. I use it all the time now. And I've had clients sending me emails and letters saying, like I have one client, for example, that we did bilateral elbow surgeries on. The dog has terrible arthritis in his elbows and we've been managing it for a long time. We've been doing injections in the joint. You name it, we've done it for this dog and she will do whatever it takes. And the last visit, I added in Antonol and she sent me an unsolicited email saying, you need to give this to all your patients. My dog went from walking down to the end of the block and back to walking one to two miles a day. The only difference was this product called Antonol. Now, I probably should get a commission from this company, but, you know, that's not the point. The point is this particular product, and there are other green lip muscle products out there, but you have to be careful. Apparently, it's to do with the way they extract the oils. They're not heated to a certain extent, so a lot of these natural anti-inflammatories are preserved in this Antonol product, whereas other green lip muscle supplements may not have the same concentrations because they obviously would be extracted in a different way. It's a proprietary way that they do it. And so I've had really a lot of success with that product. I prescribe it a lot. Well, thank you. I think everybody wants to do the best they can for their dogs. And so knowing that there are other products and other options is really important. Yeah, for sure. Dr. Jones, one other thing that we haven't talked about, and I think it's really fascinating, I'd like to be able to present this information to the audience. I have seen research that indicates as we talked about earlier, indicates that early juvenile spay-neuter accelerates the potential for these types of cruciate ligament tears. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yes, there is research that indicates that. It's early, but certainly warrants consideration and warrants further investigation. There's one large study out of California, I think it was UC Davis, mm -hmm. um, looking at almost a thousand golden retrievers. And this is probably what most people cite. And that study found that, yes, there is an increased risk of hip dysplasia and cranial cruciate ligament disease in early neutering. And usually when we're talking about early neutering, we're talking about prepubescent. So, you know, probably less than six months of age. So very early spaying or neutering, I guess I mm -hmm. should say. And I believe that to be true. That study also suggested that it increased the risk of certain types of cancers neutering early. We have to be careful how we interpret that information, however. For example, females, so bitches. I still think we should spay those ideally before the first heat or at the very least before the second heat. So between the first and second heat. So some people say, let them go through one heat and then spay. If you're going to spay, you know, the literature suggests you should spay them before the first heat. Okay. We just said a moment ago, spaying early, you know, prepubescent spaying might actually increase the risk of some other things. Yes, it does. But the benefits of spaying early, and this is again, only in bitches, the benefits of spaying early reduces the risk of mammary cancer significantly and very 
aggressive, nasty mammary cancer, that it's worth it. Recognizing that, yes, we're going to get other potential adverse effects. So for me, I usually say to my clients, somewhere before the second heat, you should spay. With a male dog, I am now encouraging dog owners to wait to about 12 to 18 months before the neuter. Let the dog fully mature before they neuter. Even if you want to go to two years of age or three years of age, in the male, I'm okay with that. But certainly, you know, I think we're going to know more about this in 20 or 30 years. We may look back and go, I can't believe we were doing this, you know. So <laughs> it's something we have to keep our eye on. But with the bitches, I still think we have to do it early because the reduced risk of mammary cancer is worth it, despite the other risks. Judy, did you have any follow-up questions as we come to the end of our time? Just one last question about preventing injuries, because obviously I think we all want to prevent injuries. I know we talked a bit about keeping weight off of these dogs, keeping them lean, and then possibly even adding some of these natural anti-inflammatories. Is there anything else that you would recommend that we can do as guardians to decrease the risk of them getting these diseases? Well, I think in addition to keeping the dog thin, keeping a dog fit is another component. So, you know, lean muscle mass is very important. You could have a thin dog that has 30% body fat, or you could have a thin dog that has a 5% body fat. Well, the 5% body fat is going to have a lot more lean muscle mass. So exercise is very important. The worst thing you can do either as a human or for our patients, be they dog, cat, horse, donkey, whatever, is put them in a box and rest them. If you've got orthopedic issues or you want to try and prevent them, Exercise is very important, very important. And that actually nourishes the joints, keeps the joint healthy. Joints don't have a blood supply. Well, they have a blood supply, but it just goes to the joint capsule. Inside the joint, there's no blood. So the way the cartilage and the ligaments inside the joint get their nourishment is from the joint fluid. The way the joint fluid gets its nutrients is through movement. Because as we move, the joint fluid moves around the joint and it picks up the nutrients from the joint capsule and it picks up the toxins from the cartilage and takes it away. If the dog is just sitting there doing very little activity, that can lead to a buildup of inflammatory mediators inside the joint, theoretically, and that may increase the risk of disease, not just cruciate disease, maybe arthritis or any of these other things. So I think keeping the dog thin, but also keeping the dog fit is, I think, very important. Excellent. Well, Dr. Jones, thank you so very much for your insight, for your knowledge that you share. I appreciate it tremendously. Thank you to all of our guests for joining us today. If listeners have additional questions, we'll be able to put some contact information in the blog post. Thank you very much. Excellent. Good Dog is a secure online community that advocates for dog breeders, educates the public, helps informed puppy buyers connect directly with certified good breeders, and promotes responsible dog ownership. Good Dog is offering its Good Breeders special advanced access to the video recordings and transcripts for the full three-part Q&A webinar series with Dr. Hutchinson. All you have to do is sign up as a breeder at gooddog.com slash join. That is g-o-o-d-d-o-g dot com slash join. Or click the link in the show notes.